This programming is sponsored by Central Market, offering chef-prepared appetizers, mains, and sides for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, like quiche, grilled chicken, dips, and salads prepared daily. More at centralmarket.com. Welcome to Power Politics. I'm Jeronimo Cortina, an associate professor of political science and associate director at the Center for Mexican American Studies at the University of Houston. And I'm Brandon Roddinghouse, a political science professor here at the University of Houston also. Thanks for joining us this week. Uh, an interesting week, a kind of food-focused week. Uh, we've got, uh, in addition to um, Marjorie Taylor Greene talking about gazpacho instead of Gestapo, we've got uh, <laughs> Ken Paxton prosecuting uh, a social media influencer on diet plans and exercise regimen. So interesting, just before Valentine's Day, right, where the chocolate-covered hearts and you know little candy messages of all sorts will find its way to our stomachs <laughs> i'm sure so a big week uh happy valentine's day everybody but uh some uh news that's uh sort of interesting and complicated because the mask question which is endured with us for a two full years now is percolating and there are some Geronimo uh house democrats and republicans who have said it's time to lift the mandate on the u.s House of Representatives floor. This is something that was put into effect last year that fines offenders for not masking up. Several people, including Marjorie Taylor Greene and Andrew Clyde, have basically accumulated double a, the median salary of a average American in fines taken away from their paychecks in order to uh, pay their infractions. So what do you make of the mask debate? Is it time to lift the mask requirements in states, dozens of governors hmm. across the country, including Democrats in places yeah. that are known to be very conservative, like Oregon and California and Delaware, yeah. and New Jersey are lifting those mask yeah. mandates. So is it time? Well, I think the argument that these governors are making is that given that the cases have gone down, mm. of, of course, until the new wave. And yeah. uh, well, I'm not the, an expert. The, com yeah. the commentator curse, yeah, all of a exactly, <laughs> exactly. And and given that uh, you know, science or you know, scientists indicate that may or may not be the case. You know, they're saying we're guiding our decisions uh, through science. We're yeah. guiding our decisions in the sense that now it's the time to do so because the science is allowing us to do so. The CDC still says that you have to wear masks inside, mm -hmm. but, you know, at least is I think that, you know, Democrats are seeing, you know, 2022 around the corner and, you know, they don't want to be blamed, mm -hmm. you know, for mask mandates and, and that kind of stuff. So to a certain extent is science, to a certain extent is politics. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, Republicans have seized on the mask mandate issue as a major complication for 2022. The uh, House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy has called out this divide and has said that this is going to be the thing that they run on. It's maybe not surprising that this is happening in California, where there are school board recall elections in San Francisco that are potentially spurred in part by anger over school closures and mask mandates. So yeah. this is something that people are pushing back on. A polling this week reports that seven in 10 Americans are 
agree with the statement that, quote, it's time to accept COVID is here to stay and just something we need to get on, get on with our lives, unquote. So it's support for these things is really declining rapidly. But like you say, the science says we still need it. The Biden administration hearing all of this has said they're not going to budge. This is what the CDC says. This is what, uh, you know, kind of the science is telling us. So now is not the moment, they say. So I guess we'll continue to watch this, but we're seeing a kind of loosening of this. And whether the House chooses to pursue this is something, I guess, that we'll you know keep track on as things but go. My question to you, since you are... A very renowned uh, <laughs> public opinion scholar, right? Indeed. We have, you know, in, in the literature, we have this thing called issue ownership, right? Mm. And it seems to me that Republicans own the mass mandate issue. Yeah. Uh, they're going to beat that dead horse uh, until November of this year. And Democrats don't have, I mean, Democrats, what they want is to stop talking about the mass mandate because that's going to hurt them at the polls. My, my question to you, is this going to help Democrats at this stage of the game or is completely irrelevant and better off uh, trying to change the conversation I don't yeah. know what topic, but uh, right. <laughs> yeah. try to change the conversation into something that is more positive to them. You make a good point, and that is, you know, what else would you talk about, right? Um, playing defense is what they're doing, and that's not good. Obviously, you're yeah. seeing where that's getting them, and the polls all suggest that, you know, President Biden's approval ratings are under 40%, which is loathsome and terrible for him and for the Democrats. So. I just don't know what they changed the conversation to. But you're right. I mean, think about this. When you go to the voting booth, you can't bring like any kind of details with you to kind of, you know, mark your ballot, but you're going to have a mask on your face. And it's one of those things that's just literally in your face, right? It's the kind yeah. of thing that people don't forget. And those pocketbook things, those lifestyle things, those things that are so close to what you do in your everyday life matter to people politically. And so Republicans have been able to, like you say, use this to their advantage. And so... I think it's going to be something that is troublesome for Democrats. And that's why you're seeing a lot of swing state Democrats in particular say it's time to loosen these restrictions. Yeah. Well, One thing we'll that see. they can change the conversation to, though, is something that happened this week. And that was that the RNC, the Republican National Committee, voted to censure two of its own members, Representative Liz Cheney of Wyoming and Rep Representative Adam Kissinger from Illinois, for serving on the House's January 6th committee. In general, this isn't something the RNC does, but there was one part of this, Geronimo, that caught everybody's ire. It said at the end of this that the prosecution of ordinary citizens engaged in legitimate political discourse. This was the sort of firestorm that yeah. began with a few simple words. But is the Republican Party saying now that this is legitimate political discourse? And is that going to have a political effect on 2022? Well, they said it. I mean, it's right there. I yeah. mean, there's there's no question. And, yeah, I and think how do you it, parse that, right? right what do you there's mean? There's no by way that? to parse it out, right? right. Senate uh, Minority Leader today, well, um, a couple of days mm. ago, said no. This was a violent insurrection, right? To stop the peaceful transitioning of power from one administration to the other. Uh, obviously, that got the R of uh, President Trump and, and Mitch McConnell. <laughs> now right. it's it's in hot water once again. But it is what it is, right? The big question is if we're going to normalize mm. this type of 
protests. When you normalize this type of protests, it goes both ways, right? Yeah. It's not just, you know, your side taking, you know, uh, state legislature or Congress or whatnot. The other side can do the same thing. And you already set up the rules for the game. So it's extremely dangerous on the one hand because that debilitates our democratic institutions. And on the other hand, it opens the door for all people to do whatever they want and feel that, oh, no, this is just, you know, normal political discourse. I can do this. Yeah. And, you know, I think you see a bipartisan effort to push back on this. You said Mitch McConnell, known liberal, <laughs> said, <laughs> you know, this is obviously untrue. I'm paraphrasing. Right. Nancy Pelosi says that the Republicans need to take their party back from this cult. But I, I think that to some degree that the Republican Party has jumped the shark on this. The party is in full denial about this fundamental orchestrated attack on democracy. So the fact that a few people have objected is really the exception rather than the rule. People like Chris Christie came out immediately and said, you know, this is wrong. So obviously this is problematic. And it's a clear reminder that Donald Trump's grip on the party is as strong as it's ever been. So, you know, we don't know if he'll yeah, run for president well, yet, but he's definitely able to kind of craft that narrative in a way that at least some will follow. And here's yeah. a question for you. And so we actually have our Texas senator but, split. But on wait, this. I didn't study, so. Uh, but all right, <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, that's question. good. Okay. <laughs> that's good. You know what? Yeah, that's okay. You know, you can still, you can still oh, like pull okay. out an answer to this question. Okay, and all that's right. about our Texas senator. So they've gone different ways on this. John Cornyn distanced himself from the resolution, saying that this was not a legitimate political discourse. That this is obviously an attack on the U.S. Capitol. Ted Cruz said it was an unfair effort to demonize Trump supporters. Didn't directly attack it, but definitely is on the side that suggests that this is something that, you know, he would have supported and, you know, doesn't stand with them, I guess, but at least acknowledges that that they have this right. So why is this different? Why are they taking these different tacks? And in general, why are Republicans split on this? Well, I think, I mean, we're going to talk about this later, but we saw it here in, in Harris County, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that what I'm interpreting from what I'm seeing, and, you know, for example, Senator Corning's position, Senator uh, McConnell's position, the Harris County GOP, we need to draw a line in, in the sand, what is acceptable and what is not acceptable. Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, Every time that the issue is being pushed over and over and over, I think that the Republican Party, or at least some members of the Republican Party, are questioning, like, hey, we're pushing the, the ban too much, mm. and we have to stop one way or the other. So to me, what we saw this week with the GOP in Harris County is like, wait, 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 stop. You cannot say these things. And especially Republicans have to be very careful how they do it. Everyone saw, right? Everyone saw what happened in January 6th of 2021. That's it. That's, yeah. I mean, it's right there. So they might enthuse part of the electorate, but the rest of the electorate is not going to mm. say like, yeah, I mean, this is very dangerous. That's a great point. Yeah, every time you see the kind of legitimate political discourse mentioned on Twitter or Facebook or something, it's always juxtaposed with the video <laughs> of the event right. that does yeah. not look like a legitimate political discourse. It's not like it does Hamilton not. versus Madison. It's like right. <laughs> people pushing down barricades and, you know, assaulting police officers. So yeah. I think it's a that's a net loser for them. And so, again, like, you know, Trump wants this to be the 
the kind of party of grievance, but a lot of Republicans don't. I also think, too, that for Cornyn, you know, he wants to be the minority leader, a majority leader eventually. So mm. I think he's got a different career trajectory than Ted Cruz, who's, you know, made his bones on being a bomb thrower. So obviously their right. sort of paths are slightly different in that way. Um, but obviously the turmoil in Washington is not just in the U.S. House. It's not in the RNC. It's also in the White House. This week, Joe Biden's top science advisor, Eric Lander, resigned less than 24 hours after a report indicated that he had bullied, demeaned, uh, and essentially violated White House workplace policy uh, against subordinates. So what do you make of this? Do you think that this is um, kind of going to hurt Joe Biden? This is the highest level official to resign from the Biden administration and clearly under pretty negative circumstances. Uh, so the report says that after that internal investigation, it founded credible evidence that he mistreated his staff. Mm -hmm. So that's a no yeah. go <laughs> yeah. anywhere, right? So, you know, it's not that <laughs> but... he's... Uh, Politically, sometimes people who do wrong get to hang on to their jobs, right? <laughs> it oh, well, depends on who you are, right? Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. But I think that, you know, uh, he resigned. You know, that's a positive sign. And, you know, bullying and mistreating staff and, you mm -hmm. know, uh, that's a no-go in any organization. No, I don't see the downfall as the, the Biden administration is losing uh, important people, high-ranking mm. uh, uh, advisors or whatnot. But I think it's the reasons here he said, you know, you mistreat staff, you're gone. Period. You're gone. Yeah, yeah. And the president made it clear that, you know, any kind of, of this activity was not going to be received well and would lead to immediate termination. It led to yeah. almost immediate termination, I guess. But we know from like studying scandals that like that these staff members tend to be the ones who go first and quicker than say a higher level cabinet official or elected official. So it's not surprising. Right. Surviving scandal is harder if you're a sort of lowlier staff member. So that's of interest. Um, so, you know, the Biden administration hasn't had that many scandals, just like the Obama administration. But, you know, they they creep up, you know, here and there as it goes. Well, let's talk about Texas because we are right at the cusp of early voting. Uh, early voting starts February 14th on Valentine's Day and ends mm -hmm. the 25th. Election day is March 1st. But uh, in the meantime, Geronimo, not surprisingly, because it's a primary, we are talking about an Avengers Civil War style conflict with all of your heroes fighting each other <laughs> instead of working together. This week, it was reported that a coalition of uh, progressive organizations are looking to oust a couple of Democratic state reps, Representative Harold Dutton here from Houston and Representative Art from El Paso, the Texans for Better Democrats Coalition, which the name itself just basically says the story, <laughs> is throwing its support behind challengers. Candace Houston, who's running against Dutton, and Claudia Otaz uh, Perez, who is a current House member, is running against uh, fellow Al El Pasan Fierro. So what do you make of this inter-party fight? Well, I think that, I mean, we have said it before, right? We saw it in previous elections, in the special elections, uh, where Representative Lujan won the election. And, uh, you know, we have seen in this case, candidate or Mark Ramirez running against uh, Lujan. But, mm. you know, Ramirez represented the more progressive wing of the Democratic Party. Yeah. So I think that this shows where, at least in Texas, the Democratic Party is trying to angle and it's moving and it's, uh, you know, 
gathering resources. This organization, the Texans for Better Democrats Coalition, <laughs> is going to throw two hundred and fifty thousand bucks into yeah. you know uh, three primaries. That's yeah. a lot of money for a primary. Yeah, and, for a house race. You know, yeah, exactly. What they're trying to do is, I think, to redefine the future of the Democratic Party in Texas. And yeah. I think that they see something in terms of having an opportunity to take these spots and then start being more and more involved in yeah. terms of pursuing policies that perhaps Democrats or more moderate Democrats are not willing to take those steps. As usual, spot on. I think you're exactly right. These aren't light organizations. You've got the Texas Organizing Project, the Communication Workers of America, the Working mm -hmm. Families Party. These are definitely organizations that have got the ear of progressives. And so this is, to me, a notification. It's that these members are on notice, that if you go against the party and attempt to sort of pursue your own approach, then yep. you're going to get targeted. And I don't know if that's good or bad. You know, there's room, I think, in every party for this diversity of opinion, but that's been harder and harder when the political world is so nationalized and the politics are so polarized. So for Fietto, he was targeted because he came back from D.C., early during the quorum break. So he got some, you know, kind of pushback on that. Dutton has received some ire because he allowed for legislation to be revived that would place restrictions on transgender student athletes, in addition to being a supporter of charter schools, which most Democrats are against. So, right. you know, this is a notification. <laughs> you know, if you're not going to be on board with where the Democrats are going, then you're going to get targeted. Speaking of targets, though, down in South Texas, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, a Democratic congresswoman from New York, uh, is coming to campaign for Jessica Cisneros, who's running against embattled Representative Henry Cuellar. What do you make of this? Is this in keeping with the same kind of thing we've been talking about where the Democratic Party is so split? And if so, what do we take from this and what's it going to mean? Well, I mean, Ocasio-Cortez is, is, is going to help uh, Cisneros and Greg Casar, uh, that is also uh, trying to unseat, mm. uh, uh, represent Dodgett that is running uh, for another district, right? The important thing, I think, is is this new strategy by the more, again, progressive wing of the Democratic Party, right? Yeah. That it seems to me, you know, the counterpoint or the counterbalance to what we see with the more, I guess, conservative members of the Republican Party, right? Mm. She perhaps uses, you know, similar tactics in, in the sense of being very active, with with her base and also supporting candidates are fall within that progressive movement within the party. And I think that to a certain extent, it's uh, signaling that, you know, they're willing to take risks and trying to unseat in this case, um, Representative Cuellar, but it shows that there is a lot of dynamism within the Democratic Party. Yeah. Let me read this quote and you tell me who you think it's from. I'll give you one guess. Oh, the quote okay, is, okay. the voters two, will two decide. Guesses, two guesses. <laughs> okay. Okay. Two guesses. Good, two guesses. Okay. Thank All right. you. The voters will decide. Two out of three. Election. Two out of three. <laughs> <laughs> two out of three. You're just like the kids. You're just like looking for more and more. You know what? I'm going to give you one. We're going to backtrack okay. on this. Okay. Here's, okay. Your one, here's your one guess. Okay. All right. Okay. Here's the quote. The voters will decide this election, not far left celebrities who stand for defunding the police, open borders, eliminating oil and gas jobs and raising taxes on hardworking Texans, unquote. Who said that? Uh, let me think. I think it was Representative Cuellar. 
<laughs> Correct. <laughs> ding, ding, right? <laughs> You're going to be the next Jeopardy champ, right? That You're going to be millions of dollars uh, you know, in your bank account. And yeah, that quote reads like what a Republican would say. Yeah. I think that he's scared. He's probably worried about this challenge as he was because you've talked about this before, but Cisneros was within four points of beating him. So Mm -hmm. that's nothing to to slouch at. In addition to now, the fact that the FBI investigation has certainly put a cloud of suspicion over him. But there are seven Republicans who are vying at a shot to flip that district. So this is definitely something that he's worried about. So I actually think he wants AOC to come. He, in the last campaign, called Cisneros a socialist and a bunch of last minute emails to supporters. So I think he actually would welcome her to come. The politics of this, the rhetoric he's using make it seem like this is, you know, something that he'd like to. It's going to be a test of these philosophies, especially the Green New Deal, which, you know, would shift money away from fossil fuels in a district where you've got tens of thousands of people who work for oil and gas industry. So I think that, yeah, this does suggest this kind of divide in the party. But uh, I'm not sure that some of these Democrats aren't encouraging it, at least as a way to kind of, you know, push back against it. But the inter-party squabbling doesn't end there, Geronimo. Like you mentioned a minute ago that this week in Harris County that a precinct chair brought up some bipartisan scorn with seven fairly shocking proposals, including outlawing same-sex education in schools, mandatory death penalty for anyone convicted of murdering a police officer, and considering all Chinese nationals as spies and removing them from the country. This was pushed back on quickly by almost every Republican, including the vice chair of the Republican Party, saying, you know, this isn't something we're going to allow. The resolutions were resoundly rejected by the local party advisory board. But nevertheless, it remains. What do you make of this? Well, I mean, I'm going to have a positive spin on this. Okay, okay? good. I like that. Kat Parks, that uh, she's the vice chair of the Republican Party of Texas, she tweeted uh, in a sense that, well, she said, we live in a time where extremism abounds and any court yesterday can submit a resolution. <laughs> so, ouch. Uh, <laughs> right. Um, but, and she says, you know, the Harris County Republican Party rightly rejected this proposal. Uh, saying that the resolution was offensive and against uh, Republican Party values, to me, right? And I'm, you know, I'm always a, a positive uh, person. I know. It. Uh, to me, it says that line in the sand, right? And it's, you know, it's coming from the vice chair of the Republican Party in Texas. I mean, yeah. certainly not a liberal. Right. Right. And and to me, it's like, no, we're going in a very, 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 very wrong direction. Yeah. I mean, just for a member of the Republican Party to suggest, uh, you know, <laughs> having that resolutions uh, for the Republican Party to vote on it, it's just completely out of bounds. Uh, yeah. It's just. No, I cannot say the word that I'm thinking right now. <laughs> but 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 you cannot do these things, right? So yeah. to me, it gives me at least uh, hope that we're going to perhaps enter into a more civil discourse and civil debate. Now, the question is, right, <laughs> if this was just posturing or not, right. and if the Republican Party is going to follow through, you know, a new chapter. Right. How, how long until this precinct chair is running for state house or... 
the U.S. Senate or who knows what, right? <laughs> Look, yeah. I agree with you. I think the line has been drawn in the sand, and I'm glad that that's the case. Some of these things are, you know, hate-filled and they're awful, but the winds blow strong in Texas, and lines in the sand can sometimes be moved. So tell me True. it won't be long before this is in the Republican Party state platform, right? That platform already includes some things like a plank on reparative therapy for LGBTQ youth, repealing the minimum wage, the you know right to secede as a state if the political system changes, abolishing CPS. I think that the question isn't, is this bad, which it is. I think the question is how far to the right can the GOP go and not alienate voters? So I think exactly. that's still a kind of question where every election cycle trying to get the answer to. And sometimes right. candidates help us to get there. So this week, uh, Shelley Luther, who is a salon owner who became nationally famous during the pandemic for refusing to shut down her Dallas salon in defiance of emergency orders and was sentenced to jail, made some comments about uh, transgender children in her classroom when she was a former teacher at this forum. She basically complained that transgender children made her uncomfortable and she complained that their classmates weren't allowed to make fun of them. A lot of people pushed back on this for all kinds of reasons, not the least of which was that it's just uh, uh, a terrible thing to say about a child. So what do you make of this in the context of the sort of civil war and the party we've been talking about? I mean, we have to stop. I mean, yeah. it's, it's, it's just insane that another human being is saying that kind of stuff against another human being. Yeah. It's completely unkind, right? Yeah. And then on the other hand, you have, you know, some of these folks uplifting uh, to a certain extent Christianity or religion or this or that. And it's like, mm, I'm sorry, what? It doesn't make any sense, right? right. And, and and it's just unkind and, and creates a very bad environment, right? It's hard to square, uh, yeah. It's it, I mean, you, we were just talking uh, before uh, a taping that you saw the, the, the video. It is yes. painful to hear painful someone to saying those words against a child. Yeah. I mean, and a teacher really? nonetheless, right? Yeah. Really? Yeah. I mean, yeah. a child, really? I yeah. mean, you can say that. I mean, you cannot say that, right? You right. can attack to your political opponent, but a child? Yeah. It's, it's really crazy. repugnant. Yeah. yeah and, and I mean, I think the sad thing is there's a premium on being extreme, right? I mean, it definitely aids in fundraising. And those are the kind of things that you know we're used to seeing in a primary, but it's gotten really too far. Actually, this week, oh, too, yeah. here's another example of this. Ken Paxton, the attorney general, is investigating GoFundMe after it has halted donations to a bunch of anti-vaxxer Canadian truckers. What's happening is that there's a protester descending on the Canadian capital of Ottawa, railing against these vaccine mandates and other kind of public health measures. This sort of so-called freedom convoy is attracting support in the U.S. among Republicans, basically because it's a kind of um, you know pushback that they were hoping for here. Uh, this right convoy is creating traffic gridlock. They're harassing people. There's discussion that they might be in LA for the Super Bowl or they might be in DC for the State of the Union. So here's Ken Paxton jumping in saying, you know, we're going to investigate why GoFundMe is not paying the money to these individuals. So uh, again, you've got this sort of grievance-led politics and Paxton in a very competitive primary looking for every edge to be able to right. make this happen and frankly using his office to get there. So that's a problematic for all kinds of reasons, but it does illustrate the point we've been talking about. Yeah, absolutely. And and again, you know, GoFundMe, I think it's a private company, right? 
and may deviate from, mm. you know, whatever is uh, their company policies or whatnot. And they said that, you know, initially they said, well, we're going to uh, refund the money to uh, whoever asks us and then donate the, the money that is not reclaimed to whatever, mm-hmm. uh, you know, charity these people want. And then they came back on, on Shannon saying, you know what, we're going to issue automatic refunds. And, and that's it. That's the end of the story. So gotcha. again, is is you know, something that we don't know why we see, as you say, grievance politics. Uh, yeah. and, and that's not good. Well, maybe we can turn our grievance into successful Valentines. This week, the Collin County Democratic Party is offering to send Texas Republican snarky Valentine's Day poems for $5 each. Here's my favorite example, one you can send to Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick. Dearest Dan, we love you almost as much as we love putting beans in our chili. (laughs) So at least we can turn our grievances into, I don't know, a little bit of a heart-shaped candy, right? There you go. go. I think that's a... (laughs) A very funny and interesting way to celebrate, uh, you know, Valentine's. But again, I don't think that those poems are going to fall uh, very well with, uh, uh, you know, Republican officials. And again, it's like, you know no what? Question. Be nice. I mean, why don't send them, right? I mean, I think that something nicer would be, well, we're going to send them chocolates or something like that instead of the <laughs> right. snarky points. Instead of, you we'll know, send them just... the, you send them the bad chocolates, the gross ones with like the weird, you know, gooey filling, right? That's like I the like ones those. that are always left at the end that, that's oh, really? your, your preference okay well okay, i mean good. it's not my preference but well, uh, what you know if they're Valentine's there Day. i'm gonna eat them <laughs> <laughs> right as long as it's chocolate i'll eat it yeah right? I'm, I'm all for it but with this sweet note uh, oh, we end uh you know today's uh program so thank you very much for everyone for listening and we'll see you next week brandon big thanks to our producer troy schultz and everybody here at hpm uh for making us sound so good i'm jeronimo cortina And I'm Brandon Roddinghouse. The party keeps up next week.